You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, I am feeling the burden of teaching today, and so um, even now, Lord, I pray that you would help me, and that you would be glorified, and that we would remember um, your servant, Katerina, and that you would use her to um, to shape us and to encourage us in our walk uh, with you. In your name, amen. So today's hearing is Katerina Schutzel, uh, and her English name is Catherine. I'll probably call her Katerina. Um, if you've been here for the last two weeks or listened to the audio, she is kind of like a mix between her last two women, Argula and uh, Luther's wife, Katie von Bora. Um, and what do I mean by that? Uh, Argula von Bora, um, like her, Katerina was a published author. She had zeal and boldness to confront those who needed correcting for the sake of the gospel. Katerina was vocal and even tried helping, like Argula, in the Lord's Supper dispute. So we're going to get into this in just a little bit. And like Luther's wife, Catherine von Bora, she was married to a reformer and led one of the first parsonages, taking care of many people who would come through her doors. Uh, so like both Argula and Katie before, Catherine has um, tenacity. Uh, she is a fighter. But today's uh, Catherine, or Katerina, did things that neither of our last two women did. So I'm excited to introduce you to her today. And for a couple of you who this is your first time, uh, the purpose of looking at these women is to remember and to give thanks to God for their legacies and their work. Often um, time when we think about the Reformation, we uh, remember uh, reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Bootser and others, and the women go um, ig most often ignored, and it really isn't until recent scholarship that they've been given uh, attention. So we want to remember and give thanks to them. Um, also, like a friend of mine says uh, concerning Charles Spurgeon, uh, we don't want to look to the women, but we want to look through the women to Jesus Christ. And so um, I hope we can do that today with Katerina. So Katerina was born in 1498 in Strasbourg. Um, so I have the map here. Here it is. And this area um, went back and forth between Germany and France. So at the time of Katerina, it was actually in Germany. Um, now it is in uh, France. And here's it. There's not a lot of good maps on, on Google. This is the best I could do. So it's, current, it's down here. Um, Wittenberg is up. And then Argula, if you remember from our first week, is south. Um, so that kind of gives you a picture of Germany. And I don't have any pictures of today's woman, but I do have some modern pictures of Strasbourg. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that make you want to visit? I think we should do a Reformation tour, women of the Reformation. We can go to these places. <laughs> so I think it's just a beautiful city. So we'll go back to our map. So she was born in this city, 1498, to a well-connected artisan family. It would be like a middle-class family, even though it's not a direct correlation between the society of that day 500 years ago into our society today. But it was she was born in a well-connected family, um, 
And as you see, Strasbourg is set on the Rhine River um, down south. Strasbourg was a free city that when I was reading about it, it kind of read like a modern city to me. You see a high value regarding tolerance and freedom. So even before the Protestant Reformation, there were seeds of re uh, toleration regarding religion. Uh, printing presses thrived in the city. To be a citizen of Strasbourg uh, was considered uh, something well sought after, a blessing. Um, during Katarina's day, there were around 20 to 25,000 citizens. So it was a pretty good sized uh, city um, with a cathedral. Um, and I believe that given what was in place in that city, it made it for kind of a perfect place for the Reformation to thrive. Um, it became a safe city, actually, for a lot of reformers. Katarina was educated as a child so that she could read and write in German. She was also trained in tapestry, a trade that she planned to use to support herself. She dates her interest, though, in the church and Christian faith at age seven, and at age 10, she felt a call by God to a religious vocation of that of being a church mother. Um, so she dedicated herself to the church, and this is fascinating given that there were no official uh, voca vocational offices or space for women in ecclesial ministry at the time. Um, but perhaps like people in this in scripture like Abraham or Moses or Jeremiah when a call came to them they couldn't see how it was that God was going to do it um, she responded in faith in assurance knowing that this is what God had called her to do um, and I kind of related to that at the age of 15 I surrendered to a call to ministry um, trying to discern if what I was hearing was truly from the Lord um, as I grew in discernment of, of a call, my life simply didn't correspond with what I saw in reality. My, pa my dad was the only staff member. He was a pastor at our first church, one of two at the second, uh, one of four at the third by the time I was in high school, and the only two women I knew in ministry were dead, um, two uh, female missionaries. Uh, but when the call comes to your life from God, uh, you surrender. You obey, even though you can't see what that's going to look like. And Katerina did that. Um, it makes me think about John Calvin, who once wrote about Jeremiah's call in this way. But when God calls us, we ought to obey, however deficient we may in all things be. And this is what we learn from what God says here. Say not, I'm a child. That is, though thou indeed thinkest thyself destitute of every qualification, though thou art conscious of thine own weakness, Yet thou shalt go. Thou must go where, wheresoever I shall send thee. God then requires this honor to be simply conceded to him that men, and I would say and women, should obey his commands so the qualification necessary to execute them be wanting. So Katerina felt a call, um, and she also felt like her call was a call to be celibate, even though she never planned on entering a convent. She read the Bible for herself and was always at the church, she gained a reputation for her piety, even gaining a following of women. Yet, Katerina could not find peace. At the age of 20, in 1518, so at, when she was 20, Luther's pamphlets came streaming into Strasbourg. Strasbourg presses were very active and wanted to make a profit, which isn't much different than today's presses. So they printed his pamphlets. Also in 1518, a new priest came to Strasbourg by the name of Matthew Zell. So today's story, kind of like 
last week with uh, Luther and Katie. It's a story really of Matthew and Katerina. So this uh, new priest come, and he's given the largest cathedral parish in Strasbourg and was appointed, in addition to that, to hear confessions and give absolutions at the cathedral. Uh, now, Matthew Zell is an extraordinary figure, um, so I'm excited to introduce you to him as well. Um, he did not get off on a good fit in Strasbourg because he tended to absolve people without requiring them to pay penance, which didn't sit well with the bishop, who was losing revenue. So by 1521, Matthew was rebuked and removed from that role, but he still served his parish. And he loved to preach, and he was good at it, and he became eventually known as the people's preacher um, and drew the largest crowds even more than the cathedral preacher did at that time. Uh, By March 1521, he was reading Luther and Scripture in light of Luther's teaching, and this began to uh, be reflected in his sermons, in his preaching. Reformation themes that became prominent for Matthew were preaching from Scripture alone, the authority of the Bible above all else, and a call of both clergy and laity to live according to the gospel. Matthew became the first reformer in Strasbourg. So sitting in this congregation, who do you think it would be? Katerina. Katerina Schutz was in his congregation listening to his sermons. And knowing the kind of woman she was, it's very probable that she sought out Matthew to discuss this new faith. So combined with listening to Matthew preach, reading Luther and scripture, Katerina finally found freedom. So I said uh, that she was not at peace. And she wasn't at peace because of the works. How could she be sure of her salvation? So now she's hearing the gospel being preached and that salvation is a free gift of God. And she finds freedom from a works-based salvation. As I said last week, one of Luther's many contributions was upholding the office of marriage, especially in, um, for clergy, and he casted it as a Christian vocation. Canon law forbid the marrying of priests, um, but it was quite acceptable, and this was um, shocking to me when I read it, for a priest to have a concubine, and even children with a concubine, as long as he paid a tax for her or and his children, which makes no sense. Uh, So as Matthew and other priests were being converted to the reforming views, a new reformer by the name of Martin Bootser arrived in Strasbourg looking for refuge in May 1523. Bootser, like Luther, was an ex-monk married to an ex-nun. Bootser encouraged these priests to make their testimony secure by taking wives. So seven priests in all married in 1523. Matthew performed the wedding of one fellow priest who married his concubine. And three weeks later, he uh, married Katerina. Um, Katerina, who was around the age of 25 or 26, and Matthew was 20 years her elder. And we have no reason to think that uh, Matthew had a concubine, although maybe he did. It's just not mentioned. Uh, Katerina had never been a concubine. So I feel like we need to say that at the outset um, because they did endure slander for their marriage. The wedding ceremony took place early, like around 6 a.m., and then they proceeded into the cathedral for Mass. And this was the very first time for Katerina to have wine in communion. Matthew called Katerina, um, in the old German, mein Helfer, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, My helper is what it means. And she called herself, quote, a splinter from the rib of that blessed man, Matthew Zell. Matthew commissioned Katerina to become, quote, mother to the poor and the refugees. Uh, He also calls her his assistant minister at times. Uh, 
uh, they have a marriage where, as it works itself out, is very equal. They are partners in the, the ministry and call. And she believed that this was God's will. And finally, she could see how the calling she received at the age of 10 to be a mother, a church mother, God was bringing to fruition. Isn't that cool? Uh, the bishop acted, the bishop though, he uh, of course did not like that his priests were marrying, and he acted swiftly and excommunicated the priest. But they appealed to the city council, and this is where it's important that Strasbourg was a free city. So they appealed to the city council on um, the basis of their citizenship for protection, and the city ended up protecting the priest, and they, the, the priest published a defense of their marriage on April 10th. Uh, you'll hear about the role of the city council uh, several times this morning, and if you read more about her story, uh, they played an important role in the Reformation. I, I wouldn't say that they were necessarily converted, that they were reformational, but again, they valued freedom uh, to a certain extent. And um, so, so they really offered protection to these reformers, but they also, as you'll hear, uh, weren't as modern as we are today. And uh, would come against Katerina and some of the things that she did. Uh, but I am reminded, as I read about the city council, and like with the last two stories, the the role of the laity in the Reformation. Had it not been for the nobility, like Frederick the Wise protecting Luther and others, or those who gave money to the reformers, or those who assisted in some way, like um, Luther's friend who helped the nuns escape, uh, who knows what the Reformation, how it would have gone, but thanks be to God who calls all of us to take a part and play a role in the expanding of his kingdom, especially through the laity. So I just wanted to mention that as I mentioned the city council. So from January to April, the bishop, the priest, and the city council are kind of going back and forth uh, about their marriage, and Katerina decided to take things into her own hands. And she wrote a letter to the bishop that evidently, quote, smoked in late January because she did not take kindly to the bishop who called her Matthew's illegal concubine uh, because he didn't recognize their marriage. So to the bishop, uh, Katerina was a concubine. And not only that, illegal because Matthew had not paid a tax for her. So in her letter, Katerina made a defense for clerical marriage and accused him of being a bad shepherd. She writes, quote, you remind me that the Apostle Paul told women to be silent in church. I would remind you of the word of the same Apostle that in Christ there is no longer male nor female. And of the prophecy of Joel, I will pour forth my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. I do not pretend to be John the Baptist rebuking the Pharisees. I do not claim to be Nathan upbraiding David. I aspire only to be Balaam's ass castigating his master. Strong words. You like her, huh? <laughs> the council forbade Matthew to let Katerina publish her letter. But they did, as I said, eventually uphold the priest, um, allowing them to keep their parsonages, and they eventually resumed their work in their parishes. And then in 1524, I just want to mention, now you're seeing visible changes in the worship services due to the Reformation taking hold of these priests' lives. So baptisms and mass were now held for the first time in German. Changes were made to the liturgy. There were no more private confessions before communion. Everyone could take both the bread and the wine. And prayers and confessions were reframed in the plural. Like Katie Luther, 
Katerina was in charge of one of, if not the most important personages in Strasbourg. She too was a pioneer in giving meaning to a new Christian vocation and that of being a pastor's wife. So for the rest of our time, I want to highlight kind of almost in bullet fashion, uh, her major contributions. And this is how I'm going to frame them. She had a call, a ministry of the gospel that was worked out in two ways. Uh, word and deed. Word and deed. So I'm going to begin first by talking about um, word. Um, and primarily this is seen in what she wrote and published. Her letter to the bishop was just the beginning. In a nearby small city called Kintzingen, a priest by the name of Jacob Otter began preaching the evangelical faith and many people became converted. The bishop and overlords of the city were upset by this. So about 150 male parishioners decided to accompany their pastor out of the city, giving him safe passage, which they did. When they returned to the city, uh, they were not allowed back in by the military. So now you have 150 plus men who cannot go back to the city. Um, so they got into their boats on the Rhine and fled to Strasbourg. The first night when they were in Strasbourg, 80 refugees stayed with the Zells. And over the next four weeks, she fed 50 to 60 of them. Back in Kinsingen, they burned all Lutheran literature, German Bibles, and persecuted the wives and children that they left behind. So on July 22, 1524, Katerina was so moved by pity for these wives who were now left without their husbands, which meant without someone to provide for them. They're going to be destitute. Uh, she wrote them a public letter of comfort, which she published and went to at least two editions. In her letter, Katerina praises the women's faith. She gives biblical examples of suffering for righteousness. She strongly emphasizes their witness and endurance. And her letter is filled with quotation, quotations of God's word, and it's oozing of sympathy. So like Argula, her letter is almost sermonic. She's quoting scripture. She's exposit, giving exposition and applying it to, uh, to the people she's writing to. Then, in September 1524, Katerina published a booklet called Apologia of Katerina Schutz for Master Matthew Zell, her husband, a pastor and servant of the Word of God in Strasbourg, because of great lies spread about, them, about him. Matthew and Katerina endured a lot of lies and slander, which was a typical experience for uh, the, the Protestants in early Reformation. So Luther and Katie experienced this. Argula um, experienced this. Um, and scholar Elsie McKee calls this booklet her defense of Matthew Zell, a sophisticated little treaty. And Elsie McKee is a uh, professor at Princeton who is the leading scholar on Katerina. So I'm, I brought her book, and I'm relying heavily on her today. Katerina said the reason she wrote this defense was for the sake of the simple people who may believe the lies and lose their newfound faith. Uh, so it's evangelistic. She's worried that people are going to believe their lies and they're going to go back to the um, Catholic faith and lose their newfound faith. So she wrote it for Matthew, but she says also for the sake of the people and the gospel. And like Argula, when she writes, she's always having to defend her writing as a woman um, because it's a stumbling block that she as a woman is writing. Um, but she says that the Bible teaches every Christian is obligated to speak for the truth and to follow the example of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, so the city officials, here they come again, they, they did great things, but they um, 
did not like what she wrote, and they confiscated as many copies as they could and censored her by name. One scholar said she's the only person who the city council censored by name. Uh, but she did have, uh, probably hid some, and McKee's hypothesis, which I believe is strong, is that she sent this booklet and the letter that she wrote to the women of Kensington uh, to Luther with a letter introducing herself to Luther. So she sends these works to Luther, um, and the reason we think that is the only first edition copy of these two works is in the library of a noblewoman whom Luther corresponded with regularly. Um, so the theory is that probably Luther sent it to, she sent it to Luther, Luther sent it to the noblewoman um, because they're bound in the library with Luther's sermons. So it's just an interesting fact. Um, on December 17, 1524, Luther wrote Katerina a letter congratulating her on confess, confessing the gospel and on her evangelical marriage. And he would later mention Katerina in his introduction uh, to his 1530 printed sermon on Psalm 110. Uh, Luther, this is just a side note that I think is interesting, Luther and Katerina corresponded regularly. Um, she regarded him as um, the, the most important reformer, um, but she also disagreed with him on points. And she was bold and even chided him for not agreeing to disagree with Zwingli over the Lord's Supper. So uh, that's our Katerina. In 1532, Katerina wrote an exposition of the Lord's Prayer intended to help women teach and explain the Lord's Prayer to their children. Um, probably her most significant work was um, written or done between 1536 and 39, and that was that Katerina edited the first Protestant hymnal of Strasbourg. So she took a 1531 Bohemian Brethren hymn book, and Katerina saw a need for discipleship. So the the common people, the the laity, were hearing the new evangelical faith preached on Sundays. They had new catechisms coming out, but that was it. Uh, she, she knew that they needed something to help implement the new teaching in their daily lives. And what better way than by singing the new theology? So I can hear a good sermon, but I probably can't quote one thing from that sermon. But I can quote a song. I can sing a song. And she recognized the impact of singing um, to teaching and spreading this new theology. While she didn't change the words of the hymn, she changed the melodies, and she wrote a long forward to the hymn book. She wrote um, an introduction to almost every hymn, giving an interpretation of the hymns. And she said, I found such an understanding of the work of God in this songbook that I want all people to understand it. Indeed, I ought much rather to call it a teaching, prayer, and praise book rather than a songbook. However, the little word song is well and properly spoken. For the greatest praise of God is expressed in a song. So these hymns were sold in four small booklets for a penny apiece. She didn't want to make money. She wanted the common people to have it. And I love this uh, quote by Elsie McKee talking about this hymn book. Uh, she said it was a fascinating monument to a strong, talented, astute, and convinced lay reformer. A woman who stood on the boundary between clergy and laity working on the continuum between liturgy and popular piety, understanding and sharing many concerns of ordinary Christians, and acting with all the resources at her command to encourage, cajole, argue, and persuade her beloved fellow citizens to sing their way into the religious renewal of the whole of their lives. 
So Katerina published other pieces um, I'm going to briefly mention. She published a letter of encouragement to a city official who came down with leprosy and was forced to leave his family and everything behind and live outside the city. Uh, so she wrote him a letter and published it. She also wrote against a fellow Protestant who later in life attacked her, which I'm going to read from in a little bit. Uh, but her most controversial ministry of word, so I said word indeed, right, came in the latter years of her life, and that is that she preached twice. Her beloved Matthew, who had always supported her and encouraged her in ministry, died in 15, uh, January 1548. The funeral would be like what we would call a graveside service, and it was performed by the reformer Bootser. But shortly after the funeral concluded, she felt compelled to preach. It wasn't planned, but spontaneous. And so imagine they're, they're probably still, the people are still hanging around. And there were probably lots of people because he was the people's preacher. He had had a huge impact on the people. And the spirit just leads her to start preaching. And she begins by saying, I am not usurping the office of preacher or apostle. I'm like the dear Mary Magdalene, who with no thought of being an apostle, came to tell the disciples that she had encountered the risen Lord. And I'm just going to read one segment, short segment from her sermon. So she says, And so I stand here today by the holy body of my husband, and confess with him and all believers the sole forgiveness of our sins only through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb, who was with the Father from eternity and was killed in the flesh for us. And for that reason is the only righteousness which counts before God, our inheritance of eternal life through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And so I say today, with and in the place of my dear husband, with Mary Magdalene, the Lord is truly risen and lives for us all. Evangelistic, huh? The death and resurrection of Jesus. One of Katerina's last acts was to perform the funeral of a disciple of one of the radical reformers. So radical reformer would have been like an Anabaptist or a spiritualist. Um, a disciple of, a, of one of those uh, died and no one would do uh, her funeral. So Katerina agreed to do the funeral, but she was very sick and had to be taken by carriage to the burial site. And the city planned to reprimand her once again. Um, once she got well, but she never got well, and she died in 1562. So that's the word side of Katerina. Now for the deed. Like uh, the Luther parsonage, the Zell parsonage was almost always full. So as I already mentioned, the Zells took in the Protestant refugees from uh, Kentsingen. Katerina served like a deacon and spoke like a prophetess. She fought, the author she fought the authorities and was one of the few lay people to gain permission to visit the sick and those in prison without restrictions. Oftentimes, those in prison or in, in sickness would ask for her by name. Katerina argued for organized chaplaincy for the poor and sick. She took care of victims of the plague. Nearly three years after Matthew's death, she was allowed to keep the parsonage, and she wrote, I take anyone who comes. It is always full. When her nephew was diagnosed with syphilis, he was placed in a hospital, so she moved in temporarily to take care of him. Appalled by the conditions she found, she wrote the city council a scathing critique of the management and made recommendations. Almost all of her recommendations were adopted. When she was disputing with this uh, reform, this Protestant priest at, 
near the end of her life, uh, defending herself, she wrote concerning her work among the poor and sick, saying, Do you call this disturbing the peace that instead of spending my time in frivolous amusements, I have visited the plague infested and carried out the dead? I have visited those in prison and under sentence of death. Often for three days and three nights, I have neither eaten nor slept. I have never mounted the pulpit, but I have done more than any minister in visiting those in misery. One of the most remarkable aspects about both Matthew and Katerina um, was their ecumenism. Uh, And that means that they, uh, they saw the importance of agreeing on the essentials. But you can disagree on the non-essentials, like baptism and Lord's Supper. Uh, they were one of the few who could truly be called ecumenical at the time. They rubbed shoulders and welcomed all Protestants, from Lutherans to Reformed to Zwinglians to radical reformers like Anabaptist. Uh, Zwingli stayed in their home. On another occasion, Calvin came when he fled uh, persecution in Geneva and stayed in their home. They traveled 600 miles round trip to visit Luther and Melanchthon. Uh, they were criticized by many of the reformers in Strasbourg for not breaking fellowship with uh, those who believed differently from them on Lord's Supper and baptism. They stood up for Anabaptists and said that they should not be condemned to death. They rightfully understood the difference between uh, the essentials, which you find in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and like I said, the non-essentials. Anyone who shared with them the chief point of the gospel of Jesus Christ was welcomed in their home. Uh, I, I don't remember if it was Matthew or Katerina who said this, but one of them said, We were not obliged to share the ideas and faith of anyone, but we were obligated to show to each one love, service, and mercy as our Christ has taught us. So I could go on um, about her deeds. Uh, she was interested in discussing theology. Uh, she, they would have table talks with reformers, a lot of reformers in their house. She once invited a prominent Catholic priest to their home for dinner in order to convert him, which she didn't, but she tried. Um, and I want to end with a quote about her from uh, the reformer Martin Bootser. After Matthew's funeral, Katerina collapsed, and he encouraged her to take some time off and go to Switzerland. And so he wrote to her host... Quote, the widow of our zeal, a godly and saintly woman, comes to you that perchance she may find some solace for her grief. She is human. How does the Heavenly Father humble those endowed with great gifts? Her zeal is incredible for Christ's lowliest and afflicted. She knows and searches the mysteries of Christ. So I think that's a wonderful testimony to Katerina. So I'm going to offer two conclusions, and then if you all have questions, I'll see what See what I can do in trying to answer them. Uh, first, in Katarina, we are reminded that a gospel mini- that a gospel ministry should consist of both word and deed. James tells us in two fourteen that faith without works is dead. Equally true, works without faith is empty and meaningless. We have a tendency in our culture to want to do one or the other. We want to preach the good news of Jesus and ignore the physical needs, or we want to do all the physical needs and not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must do both. In the book of Acts, I'd say the emphasis is on the preaching and bearing witness to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, but it was always accompanied, always, 
by taking care of the poor, the widows, the orphans, the sick, the hurting. Jesus himself, he goes preaching and teaching and also ministering to the physical needs of people. And so we must do both um, as Christians. Second, Katerina felt called to be a church mother. And the people recognized God's calling on her, and they called her. That's why the title of this class is uh, Mother of Strasbourg. She was the mother of Strasbourg. Last year, I read a blog post called Where the Mothers in the Family of God. Uh, just like God ordained marriage to be of a man and a woman and for children to have a mother and father, I believe that the church needs spiritual fathers and mothers uh, to complement one another, to share in the full image of God. And I feel blessed to be at the Advent where that is the case. Um, but last, the first week, I said that we need a reformation in Protestantism today. Our mainline denominations are dying or dead. We need a new reformation. And I believe that God is calling, whether it is to be a mother, we need more mothers, we need more church mothers for our denomination, for our city, for our nation. We need laity. We need people who will say yes to Jesus Christ, to be obedient, to follow his example, to have a ministry of both word and deed. And I think that's Katerina's legacy and, and reminder to us of this holistic approach to gospel ministry in whatever context that finds you today. And so that's my prayer. And do you all have any questions? Or things that you want to go in deeper about. What was the, what was the uh, you mentioned in passing the dispute, not, not to focus on the right. uh, non-ecumenical points, but I'm curious what the dispute was between um, her family and Zwingli on the Lord's Supper. Uh, or, or maybe was that... Mm-hmm. Was that sort of a bigger picture dispute between Luther and Swingley? Yes, and I, this is where, because I'm not an expert in the Reformation, uh, I almost hesitate to answer, but I, I will say, I think Luther, and you might know better than I do, but I think Luther held to a more um, Catholic view uh, I would say, and Zwingli held more to a memorial view. I, I, that might be simplifying it. Uh, so, and, and in fact, I read, I've read in two sources that one time they, so they would come together and discuss these things and try to work things out. And one time Luther almost agreed to agree to disagree, basically, to come together. And Melanchthon wrote him and said, if you do that, you're going to close the door to the Catholics. So there are also, uh, there are all these colloquies and meetings trying to, uh, I believe, bring unity to the church. And so Luther ended up saying no and not coming to, uh, to terms with Zwingli because Melanchthon urged him in that way. These books said that, uh, Katerina and Matthew were more were closer to Zwingli's view than say Luther's view, but they just did not make a big deal out of those things. They felt that the Lord's Supper was something that all the views were Christian views. 
you could have Luther's view, you could have Zingli, I can't say that, Zingli's view, and in between, and it, those be uh, Christian views, and it's not something that should uh, separate us. Was the discussion of what was essential for salvation. Yes. And ultimately, that was not essential for salvation. That was not essential. But the essentials to them, they fought, they drew lines, and they fought hard, and they preached hard against anything that would be works-based salvation. Anything that was uh, not faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, anything that threatened the essentials of the gospel, they were very uh, firm on. So I would point you to, that's a good question. I just, I, I'm not a Reformation scholar, but uh, I work at Beeson Divinity School and our dean, Timothy George, is a uh, Reformation scholar. He has a book, Theology of the Reformers, and Reading Scripture with the Reformers, and those might be. I would think those would be two good books to start. Good question. You're stuck reading two books. I know. <laughs> you're stuck. You're stuck without an expert. <laughs> if anyone else is an expert, please answer <laughs> or know more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask why um, did, was there any information on her being censored in Strasbourg? Why was she the only one that was? They. I read something that. So I not sure if it was her being a female. I got the sense. Uh, I didn't go into, in, in, I didn't read that deeply. I did read, if I'm remembering correctly, that uh, they had uh, had done that kind of largely with several people, but for some reason they specifically, with her, I mean, with the letter to the bishop and then with this booklet and then with the preaching at the funeral, I don't know, maybe they had it out <laughs> But yeah, that I felt like I needed to do more reading about Strasbourg too. What? She showed them though. She showed them. She did. And actually, uh, one book ends uh, with just like Moses, no one knows the place of her burial. So. Don't you think it was a combination of the theology that she was putting forth, and then a woman was an easy target? Right. Oh yeah. Combination like we can go after her, right? But um, the theology was a mm-hmm. too. Yes, and she chat. I mean, she right. went after them and challenged people. Uh, she was very bold. But then, and I, this is what I had to do more reading about. They were printing all kinds of Lutheran and other reformer um, publications. So I don't know if at, at some point those two became censored in. In Strasbourg, I'm not sure, but I do think you're right. I think the combination uh, of it all. It almost sounds like with the Reformation, the the call for every Christian to be a witness is recaptured in the church. Mm -hmm. Whereas when when the Roman Catholic Church had control, um, only the priests Mm -hmm. could do it. Although there were 
nuns and things and, and, and uh, other vocations for women where they could do work. Uh, but it was, uh, well, there was a freedom for, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but with the Reformation, like everyone yeah. can be uh, a servant of Christ. And Inclu that's including the preaching of the word. Yes. Uh, whether from a pulpit or, or you know, talking, speaking the gospel to people. Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't emphasize that, but one of the key tenets of the Reformation is the priesthood of all believers. And so she worked really, both of them did, but she worked really hard, especially in regard to women, teaching and showing them that they too had a place and a calling uh, in, in the spreading of the good news of the kingdom of God. And it's interesting, whether it's through her letters or the hymn book, I mean, Theology was being appropriated through her forwards and introductions and the way she framed this hymn book. And so I do, I, I think you're right. I think the priesthood of all believers really opened a door that would not truly be uh, fully realized and worked out for many years later. I mean, these are the very early years of the Reformation. So thank y'all. Go in peace to serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.